Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, gospel according to Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in your New Testament. And we are looking at a section again from Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the northern region of the nation of Israel. And we're learning about what Jesus did, presenting himself to the people as he came to his own. And unfortunately, as the Apostle John reports to us in John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. People who believe in Christ and respond by faith to him become God's children. And it is our goal in learning about this to not only uh, come to know Christ and to become the children of God, but also to grow in our love for him and our obedience to him as we learn all about him. And we're going to do that this morning in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Luke 6, verses 12 through 16. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his 12 disciples to him. Excuse me, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I probably don't have to tell most of you that there is a football game going on tonight. The Super Bowl, the culmination of the NFL season and playing in that game uh, are the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. That might be news to some of you. Uh, one of the teams playing in tonight's game, the San Francisco 49ers, has been there many times, won almost as many Super Bowls as anyone else. And their tradition of uh, playing in the Super Bowl and being a solid franchise dates back many decades. Some of you may even remember uh, some nearly four decades ago when one of their teams featured uh, a dynamic young defensive secondary. Those are the guys in the back trying to stop the offense from scoring. The last four, the defensive backs. And uh, this young secondary consisted of free safety Dwight Hicks and then three other starters who were all rookies in the same season. All rookie starters. Um, and not only did they all start for this football team, but actually all four were selected in the same year to play in the NFL's version of the All-Star Game, the, the Pro Bowl. And these four hard-hitting players were given the nickname that some of you may know, Dwight Hicks and the Hot Licks. Dwight Hicks and the Hot Licks. They had a leader, Dwight, and they had the rest of them who were known for hitting people hard, so hard that they were referred to as the Hot Licks. Well, not everyone who has a, a group like this or a group of companions like this has such a clever name, but there are many people who are the leaders who then also have those who are associated with them. And we can think of many examples. No doubt you could think of other people who are associated with a certain person and then the other crowd that surrounded them. We have uh, people like Alibaba and his 40 thieves or Snow White and the seven dwarves and other such groups. But maybe no group is as famous as the one that we are reading about in this text, which of course is none other than Jesus and his 12 disciples. Jesus and his 12 disciples. 
he had many disciples, as we read in this text, and as we will read in the text that follows. In fact, what we learn in verse 17 is that there was a large crowd of his disciples, and not only that, but a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus was growing massively popular and many of those people were his actual followers they actually believed what he said they were learning from him they were listening to him and they were trying to do what he said and not only that but they were actually going along with him they were not just you know learning about him from a distance but they were traveling with him they were part of the crowd that followed along and Jesus as his popularity is growing has run into some opposition he has run into the opposition of the scribes and the Pharisees and has over the past several sections of the gospel according to Luke um, progressively made them into his enemies not because he's doing anything wrong but because they are they're misinterpreting the Bible they're misrepresenting God to the people and they're also then misunderstanding the way that they should respond to Jesus and rather than simply just let this go Jesus escalates the fight between them to the point where he provokes them ultimately through doing what is right before God to be angry at him. Verse 11 tells us in this chapter that they were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. It is against this background that Luke tells us Jesus goes off to pray and decides whom he is going to call to himself to carry his message to other people who need to hear it both during his time on earth and during the time after his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. So his popularity is growing and uh, the message needs to go out. And even as much as Jesus is able to go from place to place and the word spreads, there's still going to be a need to spread the scope of the message about himself even more. It increases because Jesus' purpose is not only to preach the gospel to those in his immediate hearing, but also to proclaim it all over Israel in advance of his going all over the place and to the places that he can't go. And then once he's gone, that his message would be spread out literally all over the world. And so rather than wait and just depend upon this sort of organically growing into the kind of thing where people decided what the important parts of Jesus' message were or who's going to be in charge of Jesus' message and stewarding that, Jesus takes the initiative of picking his own men to be in charge of it. And he picks them so that he might train them and have them with him so that he might prepare them to be, despite all of their weaknesses and limitations, the kind of people who understand rightly his message and can proclaim it to other people both during his time on earth and after he is gone. Now, Jesus has already previously called a few individual people to follow him. We read about this in chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And followed him. So you have Simon Peter and James and John already mentioned here. Uh, we read about Levi in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 5, where he went out, Jesus did, and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and followed him. So we've encountered four of these men already, and they have begun to follow Jesus as disciples, but they're not yet part of this group, and they've not yet been officially appointed in this role as part of the 12 disciples or 
the 12 apostles. But here we learn about his choice and his appointment of these men to this special office so that they could serve along with him in proclaiming the message of salvation to the nations. And so in this text, we're going to observe Jesus choosing 12 disciples to follow him and to learn from him and to take the message about him to other people at his command. What does Jesus do before he actually chooses his disciples? Let's consider the preparation for his choosing in verse 12. How does he prepare for this? Well, of course, he already knows who he is. He knows why he has come into the world. There's a lot of clarity about this. And according to his deity, he knows everything and everyone. He knows what people are like. He knows what he should do. And yet he determines that it's necessary to go off and to pray. And it says that he went off to the mountain to get by himself and to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Again, this isn't just a normal prayer session. Jesus has enemies behind him trying to catch him. In front of him, there's the momentous responsibility of proclaiming his coming and proclaiming the salvation of God. And he knows that he is not going to do this on his own. And so he goes and he prays. And here we have someone who has, again, no need of confessing his sin. Here is someone who understands God and the word of God better than anyone on earth. Here is someone who has a clarity of understanding things and of seeing things and has wisdom that exceeds that of anybody who has ever lived or ever will. And yet he still feels compelled to go and to pray and not just in some token way where he says, you know, God, I'm making a decision tomorrow. Please help me do it well. But he goes and he spends all night praying to God. Now, we can assume a lot of things about what is in his prayer, uh, but we really, at the end of the day, don't know for sure. We don't know if he's asking God to help him have wisdom about who to pray or who to select. We don't know if he has already selected them and then he is asking for prayer before he appoints them so that they might be prepared when he comes. Uh, we don't know if he's just going to the mountain to pray about what's been coming and about the, the whole situation before where he's being opposed. It doesn't exactly say, although Luke placing this here does seem to indicate that all of this is in view. He goes off to the mountain to pray. There's hostility against him and then he's about to pick some disciples and it is likely that these are the subjects that are on his mind and in his prayers. But either way, we see that Jesus spends a great deal of prayer before he makes such a momentous act as this, where he is appointing people who are going to be in charge, the stewards of the message of salvation, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 4, the stewards of the mysteries of God. He's going to appoint these men, and so he goes to prayer. And it is an example that would be worthy of us following, whether we are being chased by hostile people, schemed against as Jesus was, when people might even be doing something like seeking our life to go to God in prayer. If Jesus needed it, then certainly so do we. And of course, before taking decisive action like this and even making decisions of such a scale, even though we can never really get to the scale of making decisions of apostles on something of that importance, nonetheless, there is wisdom in going before God to pray. This is not the only time Jesus would pray, far from it, not the only time he has prayed in Luke, and not the only time that he will pray according to Luke. It was the pattern of his life, and so it ought also to be for us. But Jesus, this devoted follower of the Lord, prays, and then he is going to choose 
disciples. And that's exactly what he did according to verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them. He chose 12 of them. Now, what is a disciple? When we think about a disciple, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, probably what comes to mind for you is uh, one of these guys, one of the 12 disciples. You might even hear the word disciple and picture this vague idea of 12 guys in your head that were along with Jesus. But of course, the word is a lot more broad. A disciple is someone who learns from and is taught by or discipled by a particular teacher. Uh, But there's more than that involved in just a disciple. Disciples of Jesus were, in a very real sense, those who followed him. They went after him. And this was the custom of the day. Um, It's not like today where we might say that, you know, you learn from this person and maybe you do so by reading a book that they have or you listen to something or watch something that they do. But a disciple would very often in that culture be someone who would follow along with them and would stay with them and would attach themselves to that particular person, often exclusively so. They would be trained up by that person like in apprentice style to where they learned everything that they could get out of that one person. Now, there are some benefits in our day and really in in many other days to uh, learning from multiple people for different reasons. But when it comes to Jesus, there are no flaws. There are no weaknesses. Being a disciple of Jesus is not going to cause these guys to miss out on something that they could get from someone else when it comes to understanding spiritual matters. And so they were going to attach themselves to him. They were going to follow him, go wherever he went, and be his devoted followers. And they were dependent upon him for the content that they got, for the message that they would understand, and then that they would proclaim. Now, it doesn't have to be the case for someone to follow Jesus in that exact physical way to be a disciple. In fact, when Jesus leaves the earth, when he is about to ascend to heaven, he says these words in Matthew 28. He says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." This is Jesus about to physically depart from the earth. Many of these disciples will never see him until he returns. And yet they are in reality his disciples. And so it is that people can be believers in Jesus Christ. They can be disciples of his without actually following him in that physical way. And this is what you are if you are a Christian. Everybody who is a Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in fact, in the very early church in the book of Acts, the people who belonged to Jesus were most commonly known as disciples. This is what they were called. And uh, when we are introduced to the term Christian in the first place, it actually is with the presupposition in in, uh, the book of Acts that people were really called disciples, but sometimes other people referred to them as Christians. And in fact, this name Christian was often given in a condescending, derogatory way. But Luke, the author of Acts, spoke as Christians as disciples. Everyone who is a believer in Christ is a disciple. And this ought to be the way that you think about yourself. When you think about your Christianity, is it something where I associate myself with this religion and I believe these truths about Jesus, or am I actually a follower of his He may not be present with me, but am I functionally following him? Am I a disciple of Christ? Or do I just say that I am a Christian? 
There's a big difference between the two. And Luke wants to make sure that we understand this, and he's going to make sure that we understand this as we get farther and farther along. And Jesus talks about the need to follow him and to actually be willing to go along with him. He's going to say in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus calls people to follow him literally during his life, but figuratively speaking, even after his departure, while we wait for him to come again. All Christians are disciples. They are followers. And you need to make sure that you are living with this mentality that you follow Jesus. You learn from him and you do what he says. You obey all that he has commanded. Now in this time, Jesus' disciples often followed him all over the place, literally. And this would especially include this group of 12 disciples. And this uh, begins to help us understand the reasons or the purposes of his choosing. The purposes of his choosing. He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Well, a little bit of a background here is that the established leadership of the nation is on a spiritual level a total and a complete failure. Yes, they had eradicated idolatry from the nation on some level. Yes, they had reinstituted many of the commands of Moses according to the law. Yes, they were keeping the Sabbath in a certain way, although we've seen in the previous sections that they misunderstood it. Yes, they're keeping the ceremonial laws. They've got the temple going on. They're offering sacrifices. They seem to be doing a lot of things right, but God's people are being misled by those who are in charge. The people who are the teachers are wrong and they're hypocrites and they're setting examples of what godliness is supposed to look like that are not actually accurate to what the Bible says. And so they're leading the people astray. And of course, more than anything, they're attacking the Christ who has come into the world. So you have the one who should come and should have all the leaders follow after him because they recognize who he is. Instead, they're actually hostile toward him. And so what Jesus begins to do here is to establish a new leadership, a new group of people who are going to be the leaders of the people of God. And this is not a leadership that's going to take over the nation as such, but it is a leadership that will be in charge of God's people in their new form, the new people that we will come to know as the church, these Disciples, or as we'll see, apostles, are going to be the ones on whom the church is built. And this leadership then is not going to be leadership that will oppose Jesus anymore, but rather leadership that will rightly be loyal to him as the true Messiah, as the one who is the object of our faith, and rightly so. And so Jesus picks these men, and um, this, the fact that he picks these particular men, as we'll see, common, untrained men who are outside the traditional religious channels, this shows us, first of all, that Jesus has a condemnation upon the existing leadership uh, pool and structure within the nation, but it's also a testimony to Christ's great power to be able to use such men as we find here in this way. 
to take people who have never learned these things formally, people who have not been trained, people who are not respected because of their position or their authority or because of their background, and that it's all about the content of what they teach and the faithfulness with which they live that out, that these people are followed. This shows us the work of Christ and the power that he alone can display in bringing these men to be the kind of people who would then be followed by people who value truth and godliness. So what are these guys going to do? And what were Jesus' goals in having them with him? Well, first of all, simply to be with him. To be with him. This is what uh, our parallel passages in Mark and Matthew speak about. When Jesus chose them, he chose these 12 simply to be with him. And as I mentioned earlier, um, in those days, being a disciple of someone meant that you would go all in on learning from them. And so being with Jesus would give them not only opportunities to learn from him, but also simply to be present with him, to actually learn up close, to watch him, to see what he did. There were times when Jesus would do things and this would cause his disciples, these 12, to ask him questions about what he was doing, why he was doing these things. For example, in Luke 11, 1, we read these words. It says, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Jesus didn't just teach his disciples at a, dip, at a distance. He didn't just give them messages in a crowd, but he showed them what it looked like to live a certain kind of life. And he did things that made them ask questions, that showed them there were ways that they ought to be living, things that they hadn't previously considered that he was going to make sure that they understood. And this only would take place if he was able to bring them along with him for some period of time. So Jesus invites them along. He wants them to be with him. And so just as with John the Baptist and others, there were disciples of Jesus who were known not just for learning his material, but for attaching themselves to him, watching him, being with him, and taking in all that Jesus was and did. Along with that then, not only did he pick them to be with him, but also then to learn from him, to learn from him. And of course, this is the essence of being a disciple, to learn from him. And not only would Jesus teach people in general, but these 12 disciples would learn from him in a more intensive way. They would be taught things that no one else was taught. They would be given private instruction after Jesus would say, tell a parable and just tell the parable only and people didn't understand. But then when they came in private, the disciples would have the opportunity to ask, hey, what did you mean by that? So Jesus would give these inner circle type of instructions to people whom he chose to be with him. They are uh, chosen to, they're chosen to go out, they're commissioned by him to go out and to speak on his behalf, but this then requires that he's going to actually tell them what he wants them to be speaking. Again, this is not just the messages that he taught to anyone and everyone, but he entrusted these things with a certain group. Not everything that Jesus taught while he was on earth was given broadly. Some of it was confined just to these men who would then be the ones who would go out and tell other people. Now, this helps us to understand the place of the apostles even in the future when they're teaching the things that Jesus taught them and the things that he passed along. There is a lot of thought uh, in uh, in Christian circles, unfortunately, or at least close to Christian circles, that likes to say things like this. I believe what Jesus said, and I like his words, but I'm not so sure about the apostles. 
And the presupposition is that the apostles disagree with Jesus. Now, maybe even a further presupposition is actually looking at the material and not liking what some of the apostles say and then saying, well, they must disagree with Jesus. But nonetheless, they set the apostles against Jesus. They say, well, the apostles say this and Jesus says this. Paul says this and Jesus says that. Peter says this and Jesus says that. And they fight the two against each other. But this is not the way that things are. Jesus entrusted to these men the things that he wanted them to say. And what they taught was a reliable and faithful and accurate representation of what Jesus actually entrusted to them. He spent a long, long time telling them what to think, telling them what was true about him, correcting them when they went wrong, which he was not slow to do. And so we get things like this when Jesus is uh, out of this world after his resurrection and the church isn't necessarily wanting to do what it's supposed to do. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 37 and 38. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. The Lord's commandment. But if anyone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul says here and many other places, I am just telling you what Jesus passed along to me. I am giving you the instructions that the apostles were given. And so it is that he begins his letters by stating his role as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He states that he was a steward. These are the ways that people introduce themselves, whether it's Paul who was added as an apostle after the resurrection or whether it's the 12 apostles who said that we are just telling you what Jesus told us to say. And they faithfully represented this. So they were there to learn from him, not only for their own benefit, but also for the sake of others. This leads then to another purpose for which he appointed them, which was that they would be sent out to preach. They would be sent out to preach. And this is why they are called apostles. Apostles. We sometimes use these words interchangeably. We think of 12 apostles and very often we just call them the 12 disciples but we maybe just have a little bit of a loosey-goosey understanding of what those are 12 disciples 12 apostles they are the same group but to be a disciple means that you are a learner to be part of the 12 means that you are in that group but to be an apostle means more than that it's not just a label it's not just a title it's not just a first or a last name What it is to be an apostle is to be someone who is then sent out on Jesus' behalf. Jesus sent them into the world to go and to tell people about him. Jesus not only did this during his life on earth, but also during his life after the resurrection. Uh, He did this in Luke chapter 10, where he appointed, in fact, not just 12, but 70 other people and sent them in pairs ahead of him. And then he also sent the 12 out into the the outermost parts of the earth. When he was speaking with them in the early parts of the book of Acts, he says says to them, verse 7, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So Jesus 
chose these men not only to be with him, to teach them, but also to send them out. And then that, of course, leads us to one more purpose, which is that they would be the ones who would lead the church, those who were the leaders of the church. When we read about the things that Jesus gave to the church and the gifts he gave to the church and the roles that people carry out in the church, we read these words which almost seem unfair from a human perspective, but they're nonetheless true. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and 28, you are Christ's body and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles. First apostles. They are in charge. They are the ones who tell the church what they are to do. Ephesians 2 tells us in verse 20 that the church, God's household, has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. How does he do this? Because in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Ephesians, it says that the mystery of Christ has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So the apostles, Peter and Andrew and James and John and all of these 12, became the ones who would be the foundation of the church. So who were these men? Who were these apostles that Jesus chose? We have a list here in Luke chapter 6. We have a list. Uh, And there are 12 names here. You say, why are there 12 and not 11 or 13? There is, of course, no box that comes with a prepackaged number of spaces for apostles. It's not, well, I have to have exactly a dozen. We don't know exactly why he did this, but we can say a few things. Um, There is at least a stream of symbolic continuity between the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. This doesn't make the apostles the head of a, quote, new Israel, but it does have a kind of echo to it. Um, Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, verse 28, that in the regeneration, in the resurrection, when the kingdom of God arrives, that the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's obviously some intentionality to this number with regard to the future restoration of Israel. We also read in Revelation 21, verses 12 to 14, about the heavenly city where the gates not only have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, but there are foundation stones with the 12 names of the 12 apostles of Jesus. So the number is obviously chosen on an intentional level uh, in some way, not just because Jesus said this is the right kind of number for my needs, but also because he wants to have this sort of symbolic continuity concerning both Israel and then the leadership of the new people of of the church. Beyond this, it's difficult to say exactly why he had this many. Now, of these 12, as I mentioned earlier, four of them have already been introduced to us, but we're meeting eight of them for the first time. And I want to show you just a little bit about the structure of how these are introduced and then learn a little bit about each one of these men as we're introduced to them for the first time. You'll notice that they are um, listed out in a certain order. The, uh, this is one of four places in the New Testament where all of these 12 apostles are mentioned. The other places are in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Acts chapter 1. There is no list in John's gospel. 
they're always in three groups. They're aligned in three groups of four, meaning the first four names in the list in all four places are always the same, even if they're in different order. So the first four are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John in some order. The second four are always Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas in some order. And the third group is always James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, uh, the son of James, and then Judas Iscariot in some order. Now, in particular, those groups are always headed by the same person. So in the first group of four, Peter is always mentioned first. In the second group of four, Philip is always mentioned first. In the third group of four, James, the son of Alphaeus, is always mentioned first. In addition to this, Judas Iscariot is always mentioned last. And except for in Acts 1 when he has already betrayed Jesus and killed himself, he is always noted as the one who would betray Jesus or as a traitor. He is such an evil man and his deed is so heinous and infamous that we don't even, uh, that Luke doesn't even let us get and none of the authors let us get any further in the story without letting us know this is the one who made sure that Jesus got betrayed. Now, let's go through each one of these men and learn a little bit about them as we go. The first group, we find Simon, whom he also named Peter. We met him earlier in chapter 5. Simon is a fisherman. He lived in and evidently had a home in Capernaum, according to Mark 1.29. But John 1.44 says that both he and his brother Andrew were from nearby Bethsaida. Simon was his given name, but he had a name given to him by the Lord Jesus, Peter, which referred to the fact that Jesus was going to do something with him in the founding of the church. He's already in interacted with Jesus concerning uh, a fishing expedition. Jesus tells him to go gather fish out of the lake, and he says, well, we already tried that. There's nothing. We've been there all night. Jesus says, try again, and Peter does it. And then his reaction when they catch this huge haul of fish is to tell Jesus in Luke 5, 8, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus then calls Peter to be his disciple who would follow after him. Peter is no doubt the most prominent of all 12 of the apostles, of, this, of these 12 apostles. He is seen as the leader of the group. He's the one who is, represents the group very often. When Jesus talks to all of them, Peter will speak on their behalf. Uh, he is the one whose words are featured most prominently by far in the gospel accounts. And he's someone who's a fascinating character because he, uh, he had a very bold personality and one where he would speak up often and he would make great claims and he would make uh, great promises to Jesus. But then he would also fail, sometimes spectacularly. Jesus said that, um, I'm never going to deny you. doesn't matter what happens. And yet he's the one who denied Christ three times that very night, fervently. He is the one who made the great confession about who Jesus Christ is and who ultimately said to him, I will lay down my life for you. But at the end of the day, it ended, be, ended up being the opposite. Peter was sometimes so bold as to actually stand up and try to correct Jesus himself. When Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, Peter said, no, you're not. And Jesus turned around and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. When Jesus wanted to wash their feet, Peter says, you're never going to do this. 
but he gave in when Jesus insisted and explained why. Jesus was very gracious to Peter. Peter is a wonderful example of the grace of God, of how he takes people who have great flaws, people who, um, people who may fail Jesus in a lot of ways, and yet he still employs him and does tremendous things through him in the service of the gospel and in the service of Christ. Even after Peter denied Jesus in his hour of greatest need, Jesus graciously restored him and he put him into the most prominent of roles. It was Peter who had become the featured preacher on the day of Pentecost when the church began, when the Spirit of God comes from heaven and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and the church uh, gets launched in this amazing way. Peter is the one who would become a pillar in the early church, so much so that people outside recognize, yes, Peter is one of the big guns in the church. And he is someone that even the Apostle Paul recognizes working in the same way to a different group of people primarily. Uh, he, Galatians 2.8, he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And it wasn't just to the Jews that Peter preached either because God used him to bring the gospel first to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, he went to Cornelius. He was sent specifically to him by himself to go and to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ to the nations, showing that the message of hope was not just for those from Israel, but for those from everywhere. Peter ultimately would write two books of the New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter as well. We learn also about his brother, Andrew, a much less prominent name, but one that was in this group of four, this group who seemed to be the closest of the 12 to Jesus. He was Peter's brother. He was also a fisherman, originally from Bethsaida. But there is no recorded instance of him even speaking here in the New Testament other than to bring Jesus, to bring Peter to Jesus in the first place in John chapter 1. And then he immediately takes a back seat to his more prominent and perhaps his more bold and aggressive brother. James and John finish out this first group of four. They, they were the sons of a man named Zebedee. We learned about them in Luke 5, verse 10. They were partners of Simon Peter in their fishing. They were fishermen. Um, they were also referred to by Jesus as the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. And if that sounds like a wrestling tag team name, that is about the attitude that they had at the time. James and John were prominent leaders in the church early on. James was a leader in the early church whose words were not heard that often, uh, but who was beheaded by Herod the king, according to Acts chapter 12. Now, it's important that we don't confuse him with the other James who was a leader in the early church, which would be James the Lord's brother. That James, the Lord, brother of the Lord, was an apostle, but not until after actually the Lord had been resurrected. He was someone who took a prominent role in the early church, as noted in Galatians 2 and Acts 15. He's the author of the book of James. But this is a different James, James the son of Zebedee, James the brother of John. And his track record of speaking in the New Testament is not exactly stellar because we only have two things that he said. One is when he and his brother John went up to Jesus and asked if they could be the ones to sit next to him in glory, which made all the rest of the apostles very angry. And then uh, when they both went to Jesus and said, hey, should we command fire to come down and burn up these people who aren't believing in you? That's the apostle James. Those are the things that he said as recorded in the gospel accounts. This is a man that Jesus used to start the church. 
His brother John is recorded saying a few things. He wants to prevent a man from casting out demons because he doesn't follow along in person with Jesus. He's the one who asked Jesus, hey, who is the one who betrays you? Who are you talking about? And um, he's the one that pointed out to Peter that the person they were seeing after the resurrection was, in fact, Jesus the Lord. Peter and John worked together in the early chapters of Acts, mostly Peter leading the way in terms of the speaking, but the two of them were known together. They were the ones who were arrested after they went up to pray and then they healed a lame man. And then they were the ones who went down to Samaria to see that the gospel would go to the Gentiles and to lay hands upon them and so that the Holy Spirit would come to this new group of people. John was known, of course, if you've read the gospel of John, as the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He held a special place in the heart of the Lord. And he's the John who wrote five books of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John, and the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now these four, and three of these four in particular, Peter, James, and John, seem to have a uniquely close relationship with Jesus. And he, in fact, took them with him when he went to certain special events. When he went into the house of Jairus, whose daughter had died, and Jesus was going to raise her back to life, he took these three, only these three, to be with him. When Jesus was going up on the Mount of Transfiguration to show his glory, he took only these three with him. And when he went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night in which he was betrayed, he took only these three with him. Now, there would have been people, no doubt at this time, who would have been a little bit jealous of the 12 disciples, but you can imagine as well that there would have been others who were jealous of these three disciples whom Jesus took on special occasions with him. And this is a warning to all of us who would be really unhappy at the kinds of privileges that we see other people getting that we ourselves don't think that we have, of of the kind of um, exclusion even being performed by Jesus who had certain roles for these certain men. The other apostles were not unimportant because they weren't part of this group of three. And these men were not intrinsically more important, but Jesus did have a special role for them. And we need to learn a lesson from this that even Jesus himself would focus a particular type of attention at times on these certain men because he had specific reasons for them. And um, no doubt the others who were jealous when James and John asked for the right and left hand of Jesus uh, could have been tempted to jealousy on these occasions as well. But Jesus had his purposes and he is wise in doing this. And he took these men and he prepared them in the way that would be necessary for them to serve him best. Now there's a second group with much less known about them. The second group is made up of, first of all, Philip. And Bartholomew. Philip also is from Bethsaida, the city of Peter and Andrew, according to John 1.44. And we learn that he is the one who brought Nathanael to Jesus. Luke also mentions Bartholomew, which is literally the son of Tolmai. Um, he was probably known by his last name. But he may even be this Nathanael. John 21.12 mentions Nathaniel among a, a bunch of other apostles who were together after the resurrection. And John doesn't mention anyone by the name of Bartholomew. So likely this is the same guy. We read one interact, interaction with the two of them in John chapter 1, verse 43 
through the end of the chapter. I'll read that for you. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, you know the words, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Matthew, we met in Luke chapter 5. Matthew is also known as who? Levi, the tax collector. And he is noted as having that particular role. Not here, but nonetheless in the Gospels. He is known as the tax collector collector and we never hear him speak at all or anything noted about him after this time except that he wrote an entire gospel account which we now have the gospel according to Matthew Thomas was known by another name at times Didymus or the twin he seems to be a little bit of the pessimistic type maybe some of you can identify with this when Jesus went was going to go to visit Lazarus's relatives after Lazarus's death going up into hostile territory, uh, Thomas had these encouraging words, let's also go so that we can die with him. John 14, 5, he says, hey, Jesus, you say you're going away, but we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. Of course, Jesus replied with the famous words, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's how you get to the Father. I'm going to the Father, and that's how you get there, through me. And then, of course, the most famous uh, incident in Thomas's life where he would become known as doubting Thomas when he wouldn't believe unless and until he saw and touched the nail wounds in Jesus' hands and side. And yet he did, when presented with that evidence, believe. He did believe and he responded. That's the second group. Not much known at all about the third group. James, the son of Alphaeus, we know only that he is a different James. Simon, who is called the Zealot. And this is uh, his name in all four lists. The Zealots uh, were a political party that formed later on, uh, or at least were more, more uh, reliably documented later on after this time. But there was a stream of this idea of being a Zealot, which would be uh, people who were radically opposed to Rome and its rule over Israel. And it's very likely that Simon fit, came from this group or this mentality. And you can imagine the relationship that he might have, naturally speaking, with someone like Matthew, the tax collector, who collected taxes for Rome and then Matt Simon the Zealot, who would have been hostile and aggressive toward removing such people from the nation overall. One represented and administered Roman dominion over Israel, and the other resented and resisted Roman dominion over Israel. And yet here you have these two who are able not only to put those things aside, but to say there's something more important to us than what we were doing before. And they would love each other, and they would surrender and yield their previous priorities in the specific service that Jesus called them to follow. 
Judas, the son of James, not Jude, the Lord's brother. Jude, the Lord's brother, didn't believe in him yet, according to John 7. Uh, But this Judas, the son of James, who is noted only as asking a question in John 14, verse 22. And then you have another Judas, the infamous Judas Iscariot. His father, Simon Iscariot, had the same second name, the same surname. And so it seems that this is not a nickname, but rather a family name. And it most likely refers to him coming and the family coming from a certain region, the region of Kerioth. Judas is noted, as you see here, as a traitor. Before he ever does this, before we learn anything else about him, Luke is either noting what already is or informing us of what should be the elephant in the room when it comes to Judas. That even among the disciples that Jesus chose to minister with him and on his behalf, that there would be one who would betray him and that Jesus was going to come to his death by virtue of one who was one of his closest followers. In addition to all of these individual things, we might note that almost all of these men were from Galilee, not Judea. Judas is the only exception to this. They were not formally trained in theology by the accepted teachers of the day, which made their later confidence in the sight of the Jewish leaders uh, amazing, amazing, according to Acts 4.13. And so they're going to have to learn everything that they knew from Jesus. This is quite the task that Jesus had before him. And yet, he is up to it. He's able to take it on. Eventually, he would appear to the 11 who remained after Judas' death, not only throughout his life, but also then after his resurrection. And Jesus would be there for them, not only then, but also even as he sent his Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to be with them, and then to be with us, all of those who believe in Christ, even after his departure. I want to think for just a moment here, briefly, about a few things concerning how these men came to be apostles. Because there is no job application, there is uh, no indication of them trying to become the twelve. So what happened here? Let's think for a moment about the principles of his choosing. What did Jesus use as the basis for choosing these men? And what does this say about their work? And how does this cause us to praise him for it? First of all, these men were they were chosen according to his choice, according to Jesus' choice. Now, they did follow after him, but he picked them. He chose 12 of them. It wasn't like they applied for the job. There was no kind of clamoring for it. There's no indication at all that there was a, you know, a fight for people to do this. Jesus determined who got to be part of this group entirely on his own. And yes, they did have to come with him but he made sure that they came with him he chose 12 of these disciples we read about jesus priority in doing this in john chapter 6 where um, a lot of people are turning away from jesus because you know he's confronting their desire to just only use him to get food they want to make him a king because he's feeding them he feeds five thousand out of very little food um, and so Verse 66 of John chapter 6, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not following him anymore, walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
a great answer. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so it kind of sounds like, hey, you know, we're the ones, we get it. We understand rightly. And what does Jesus say? Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is a fascinating response. Jesus doesn't have to say that. He could say, you're right, Peter. You're right. You're not going to leave me. You understand who I am. You recognize that I am the Holy One of God. You know that I have the words of eternal life. And what does he say? Peter, do not be so quick to even come close to thinking about taking credit for you being a follower of me. Everybody else is leaving, Peter. But the reason you're not leaving is not just because you recognize who I am. And not just because I'm the only way of eternal life. But it's because I chose you to be my disciples. That's why you're following me. It's an amazing statement, not only on the level of allowing them in in the first place and selecting them for the office, but even the reason why they follow him as Christians. Jesus' choice of the disciples is his from start to finish. So the principle, firstly, of his choosing is that it's according to his choice. It's also by his grace. It is also by his grace that they become his apostles. No one of these apostles deserved to be his follower. None of them deserved to have the blessing of being with him. And no one of us would either. There is not a person in the world who is good enough for Jesus. And yet Jesus qualifies them to be able to be his followers. Jesus shows grace in allowing them to serve him. And this is... This is... Um, uh, a perspective that we need to remember that we are privileged to know and to serve him just like the apostles we don't get to we don't serve jesus just because it's some obligation that we have but it is his gracious act to allow us in to be able to be used by him in his service and we should be thankful for it all the time and then finally he chooses and then he provides his power he provides his power to enable them to serve. When you read the stories of these guys throughout and the things that they say and the mistakes that they make, it's unbelievable that the gospel could go forth through them. And yet it does. And this is why Paul said this. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. The grace of God is working through me. He's not just talking about forgiveness. He is talking about being empowered by Christ to actually serve in this way. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus and God the Father worked, as Paul said, not only he, did he effectually work through Paul, but he effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised. Christ doesn't just tell us what to do, but he provides the power all along the way. And just as he provided it for this lofty task of apostleship, so he will provide it to you if you desire to serve him and if you know and love him as a Christian. And so we learn from the apostles not only that God graciously chooses people to be his followers, not only that Jesus gives people the privilege of serving him, but also along the way that he gives the power and the grace to enable us to do that. 
Well, we will learn more about the apostles and about what they're going to do. But now, with these in place, we're going to begin in the coming weeks to learn what it is that Jesus would teach. What is at the heart of his message? As we begin to learn about what we know here as the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount, as it's known in the Gospel according to Matthew. And we will learn just what it means to be a Christian who follows Jesus Christ. Let's uh, join in prayer together as we close. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and thank you for these, these men that he chose undeservedly, and yet by his own will and his own grace and his kindness so that they would do the work that has led to us today, knowing and believing the gospel. And we pray that we might faithfully carry on the task of proclaiming your word to others and that we might, just like they, serve in the power of Christ to bring about his glory among the nations. And we pray in his name.